Hello and welcome to the Pint of Science Ireland podcast. I'm Kate Finucane and today we're bringing you extended cuts of the Science Festival taking place in pubs across Ireland as part of International Pint of Science. Today we're joined by Andrew Ryan. Andrew is a master's student in UCD studying the deer in Phoenix Park. He is a part of the team that monitors the deer and his research specifically focuses on infectious diseases such as toxoplasmosis. I myself have always known about the deer, but this conversation taught me much more about this unique part of Dublin's character. Grab a pint, it's starting. So hi Andrew, thanks for joining us today. It's great to have you on the pod. So as I said there, you work with the deer in Phoenix Park, which are in my mind unique, like in a public place, cars going by through every day. What kind of is so special about these deer? How do they end up in the middle of Dublin city? So yeah, the Phoenix Park was kind of created originally as a hunting park in 1662 for these deer as a hunting area. It was made open to the public then in about 1750-ish. And I think they had a bit of a reprieve during COVID from the cars, but other than that, like there's... Well, it came and went. So actually with the restrictions, but yeah, so a huge number of people, it was within their 5k. And even as soon as the restrictions were lifted, people were able to drive again. For the first week or two, there was cars parked three cars deep along every single roadway, and people love to see. Like the, it's a, even aside from just a habitat for the deer, it's a huge public resource for people to be able to use this park. And obviously, for there's lots of sports between cricket and polo pitches there, soccer pitches, and people walk in the park all the time as well. Yeah, I suppose even with the zoo and everything, even if you're not coming there specifically for the deer, it is just a large tourist destination for people. And what sort of work goes into, I suppose, maintaining the herd? Like, they're wild animals, but we do have some input, obviously, on how they live their lives. So can you tell us a bit about the lives of the deer? Yeah, so most for most of the year, the males and females actually stay completely separate in different areas of the park by themselves, naturally. So if at the Papal Cross, at the bit further away from the zoo, the zoo is, most, is the female area for most of the year, and the area close to the zoo is the male area most of the year. And then during the rut, which is around August, the males will come over to the female area and try and set up harems for themselves for their own breeding areas. And that's where you get the, these pictures of the rut, the deer coming together, clashing together and everything. Then after about, I think it's nearly nine months gestation, then the fawns are born in around June. When they're born, they're hard, the fallow deer are a hider species. So the fawns are kept left in uh, bushes and long grass by the mothers until they're for about a month until they're big enough to come and join the herd themselves but there's a huge variation depending on with the individual as to how quickly each one will be brought into the herd the best way obviously to tell the sex apart with the antlers which are really kind of prominent on a lot of the male deer so they actually change as they get older as well so the prickets will only have one prong so that's a one-year-old male deer will have just a single spike then from kind of two to seven or eight, they'll have the full rack of antlers. As they get older, they get bigger and bigger. Then for over the age of seven to nine, the antlers will begin to shrink down again as they get older and older. So every year, the males will lose their antlers at around, around this time of year, about around March time. So OPW prefer people not to go pick them up from the park. I would imagine so. Yeah, yeah. yeah I suppose the dropping of the antlers is something that, like a fact that I did tangentially know, but hadn't thought about the practicalities of a public park with a large herd of deer suddenly having like an influx of shed antlers for the public to wander around and pick up. So that's a problem I hadn't imagined the government having yeah. to deal with. So I think mostly the rangers will collect them themselves. And... Mm. 
then store them or yeah, dispose of them in some way. Yeah, basically, but yeah. I suppose that leads into outside of like just picking up antlers and monitoring the deer. What sort of work goes into like maintaining the herd? So the herd is completely wild. So they're really, apart from, there's a little input put in as possible basically from the OPW, who are Office of Public Works, who are in charge of monitoring the whole park. They do, unfortunately, because there's no predators obviously in the park, just as deer are kind of a prey animal, their numbers will increase rapidly if they're not maintained every now and again. So there is a yearly cull run by the OPW, but it's run with oversight from vets, the meat, uh, any of the meat is sold back into the into the food supply. The money and the money from that goes into the exchequer. So the OPW doesn't make any money off the kind of cull of deer. But we do the research from UCD will use, sometimes take as an opportunity to collect our samples. So for my work here, I've been I went out to the cull once or twice to collect some samples for my own work. Uh, it's a bit, it's intense, I'd say, as a experience and sad, obviously, to be have worked with these deer a lot and. We do a lot of work the deer, like monitoring them all the way through. Um, from when they're fawns, we kind of catch them and put the tags in their ear, and then we'll follow these individuals through their whole lives. So it is a bit emotional then. Mm. But we have no say in exactly who gets kind of culled. OPW rely on research from UCD to give a population estimate and population dynamic estimates. So how many deer are there of different age groups? And we'll try and cull accordingly to keep the population healthy inside of all these metrics. Mm. I suppose that's the bit that you don't think about when you're going into the research. Um, but it's the natural yeah, reality of it, I yeah. suppose. Since after wolves were kind of killed off in Ireland, the biggest land animal or la- land carnivore is kind of like a fox or a stoat, mm. which sometimes the foxes can take the fawns, the, ver- the kind of baby deer, but they won't take any it's adults not gonna... out of the population. Yeah. So. And how long would a deer live it depends no on the uh, it depends on the sex of the deer. Actually, the males after going through the rut, they put so much stress in their bodies. They tend to live. I think the max we have in the park is about fourteen to fifteen years, whereas some of the females, the does, can live up to twenty years. Oh wow! Okay, yeah, That's so it's a big difference because especially during the rust, the males don't eat at all. So they basically just spend their entire time trying to set up these kind of harems <laughs> and defend them from other males. That's nuts, to be honest. Yeah. God, that's. I guess I'm glad it doesn't work like that for humans. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, how did you get involved in this work? So, you mentioned the tagging of the fawns. Yeah. So, as uh, in my undergrad, I went to science because that was always something that interested me. I wanted as broad a group as possible. And I kind of had an idea going in that I wanted to do zoology. So, that's kind of ended up in my first couple of years. I kind of meandered around looking at maths and physics as well. But ended up picking zoology and then the OPW basically hire UCD research from UCD to monitor the population and part of that is to catch the fawns so as I said when they're when the fawns are born they'll go through a hider phase where they're being where the mothers hide them in kind of long grass until they come to join the herd UCD go out or are hired by the OPW to go out and catch as many of these fawns as possible and give them ear tags individual unique identifying ear tags to uh, so that we can monitor them then through their entire life, and it gives it's much easier then to monitor the whole population if we tag usually about eighty five percent of the fawns born every year. And as part of that, my supervisor will hire some of the undergraduates doing zoology and you see to help out with this fawn tagging work. And so that's how I kind of first got introduced into the lab, and then I did my undergraduate thesis. I also did with Simone, and then 
finally I came back when I was ready to do a master's. I came back and talked to him again about starting on a project, working with the deer in the park, because it was always something that I found fascinating to have a group. It's just kind of, there's very few places in the world where you have a group of wild animals that are completely like identifiable. You can follow through their entire life cycle and take samples from them, not whenever you want, but they're like readily available samples coming off this herd the whole time. Wow, yeah, it's actually quite a unique yeah. um, system. It's cool that UCD kind of has the pipeline almost of getting people who are interested in zoology into the system of research so that if they want to continue, they've already had that experience, they know what it's like. Um, and like yourself, then you're confident enough to know that that's something you want to do, which I think is at odds with some other courses. You don't get that experience as much. I suppose when I've heard about the deer in the news, I know recently enough, you know, the word is kind of out not to feed the deer specifically. Can you tell us why that is? So it's bad for a couple of reasons. Firstly is obviously physiologically, the deer are kind of designed, their stomachs are designed to eat grass most of the time. And most of the food that people bring, be it kind of even apples or carrots, or some people just bring human food, like whatever they have in their pockets, you know, uh, is not good for the deer to be eating a large amount of that all the way through. It's like, for example, bringing your, bringing your kids to McDonald's every day for their all the way growing up. It's not going to do good things for them, even if they won't complain about it themselves. Second reason it is bad is behaviorally. So the deer are large wild animals, and especially during the rust, the males can get very uh, kind of jumped up on testosterone, quite aggressive, and obviously they have the big antlers, which are sharper than they look, and they are and quite they big and, strong <laughs> and dangerous, yeah. So we've heard some reports of people being hurt by the deer, mostly just kind of cuts or bruises or a burst lip. And there have been stories, if you look them up online, of people being hurt by the deer. Luckily, so far, no one's been badly injured. But potentially, if the rate of people feeding the deer keeps growing and growing and growing, it may become more of an issue going forward. So you work with, I suppose, toxoplasmosis in deer. Can you tell us, first of all, what that is? I know I've heard of it in the context of cats. Yeah. So toxoplasmosis, yeah, as you said, it's a parasite, a prozone parasite that mostly runs between cats and rodents. So the only place it can reproduce sexually is in the guts of cats. And it releases then these eggs, these oocysts that are released in the cat's feces, then get picked up by rodents, ingested either in their feed or somehow. And once the rodents pick it up, they'll infect the rodent and then it'll, the virus will form cysts in either muscle or nervous tissue. And when that rodent is eaten by a cat again, it allows the cycle to continue around again. So to increase the likelihood of this cycle passing along, the parasite seems to change the behavior of rodents. So there's a famous study uh, done in the 90s, looked at where they had rats on a farm that they were catching. So they had these live traps and they caught these rats. They were catching the entire population. And they found that in the first couple of days, 90%, 99%, I think, of the rats that were positive for toxoplasmosis were caught. And then for the rest of them, there's very few. Rodents have an innate fear of the scent of cats and cat, kind of cat urine. And it's found that in rodents that are infected with this toxoplasmosis, they lose their fear of cat urine, which is a phenomenon called fatal feline attraction. They also seem to take a lot more risks. But more interestingly, it'll also infect nearly any warm-blooded animal in the same way that it'll infect rats in the same kind of form so this kind of it'll infect basically anything up to humans so in humans mostly uh you, if you catch this you might catch a small 
have a flu for a couple of weeks, but after that you probably won't feel any more, any more symptoms. It's most dangerous or most uh, famous probably is for pregnant women. If they inf- get infected with the parasite for the first time when they're pregnant, it can co- cause problems for the unborn, ch- unborn fetus in them, and especially with kind of eyesight, and they can miscarry in extreme situations. So that's part of, you may have heard, the pregnant women are often given the advice not to change cat litter boxes while they are pregnant, and that is to stop them from catching this parasite. However, it also seems to have the similar behaviour effects that it has in mice in most warm-blooded animals. So there's been tests run on people. It's been found that in humans, that people who, who were injured in car crashes were more likely to have this parasite. And also entrepreneurs, because it seems to dull their fear of risk. So wow. they're okay. more likely to have this parasite in them. It's kind of interesting. So there's been lots of studies done, especially on rodents in kind of laboratory conditions. But in wild animals, the tests are a lot more sparse. There was one came out recently looking at wolves in Yellowstone National Park that found that wolves that were infected with this parasite were more likely to take on riskier roles, like dispersing from the pack or challenging for pack leader. And there's one or two other instances as well looking at uh, hyena cubs. They found that ones that were infected with this parasite were more likely to come closer to lions than ones that weren't and that higher mortality to lion attacks. But, yeah, basically we wanted to look at it because there's been a lot of study of this done in sterile lab conditions where you take out as many variables as possible. Not to make the effect, not to, like, overly express the effect, but to make where the effect can mostly be observed the easiest. However, we want to see in this more variable system, there's a lot more things going on going into it if the same effects will occur. So we found out from testing the deer that about kind of 15 to 30%, depending on when you test, will have come back positive for toxoplasmosis. Yeah, and then we want to see, look at the behaviour of the deer to see if they would, the ones that were positive were more likely to be taking these risk-taking behaviours. And so to do that, we looked at the uh, metrics for deer that were interacting with people, ranking the deer. So what, going out, doing a lot of field work, going out, watching the deer and watching the, how the deer were interacting with people and what deer were interacting with people. And so from taking all this data and, years and years of this data they've been able to build a ranking for every year of what deer are the highest heaviest beggars and what deer are the least likely to beg and so I was able to take samples from the deer and combine it with this data set and worked out that the deer that were positive for toxoplasmosis were more likely to be begging from people. So that's their risky behavior yeah in the sense. One other bit I just thought of to add on to that Mm -hmm. question is especially looking at my research, looking at toxoplasmosis and zoonosis in general, so diseases that infect animals and people and can, in theory, jump between the two. While it's unlikely for toxoplasmosis specifically to jump from the Phoenix Park deer to people, because really the only ways it can be spread are through cat feces, which the deer aren't putting out in any (laughs) at all, or by eating infected meat that's uncooked. So uh, obviously any venison that is sold from the Phoenix Park will be cooked well before being consumed, basically by the general population. But more broadly, it's an interesting finding to see that these deer that are infected with a parasite are coming closer to people and putting people in, having more contact with people than deer that aren't infected. And possibly if they are more likely to be infected with other diseases or there are other diseases that the deer do carry some it's really rare in the population but every now and again we come across tb in the population and these deer as well aren't don't have regular vet checks or something like you would imagine in a farm population so to for people coming up to the deer or 
feeding the deer from their mouths or whatever. They're not, you know, they're outdoor animals. Don't. Uh, <laughs> so the fact that toxoplasmosis increases that human contact yeah. is in itself interesting then to study for those reasons as yeah. well. And then in context of other parasites, it could be interesting and other diseases if these deer, especially if they're not feeling well, maybe looking for higher value food than or higher calorific value food than just their normal grass might be coming more in contact with people and in theory could spread something. But again, it's nothing, we don't have anything concrete on that yet. Yeah, I suppose that's probably on people's minds a bit more than it would have been yeah. a couple of years ago as well, at least the general population. Yeah. Wow. It's interesting that like something that was so specific to like rodents, which are then the food source of these cats, yeah how that expresses so differently across like even humans that's like I wouldn't have thought that would have been as prevalent yeah and you said what 15% of the deer um, yeah it so it depends we ran two different testing formats and we had depending on how we test we got different results mm. so the first time we tested was from the, when we were tagging the fawns uh, we were able to take a small blood sample because deer are ruminants they don't pass their antibodies across the placenta. They actually, similar to cows, people are more like more... It's that, Ireland. Yeah if, yeah, if that's more... Um, people are more like to maybe run into it this way. But the first feed for deer are really important. That's where they pass all their antibodies on to their young. So if you test the fawns within the first week or two, get the antibody, and you find antibodies in that blood against toxoplasmosis that means that it came from the mother rather than from the fawn. So by testing the fawn, we know the infection status of the mother. And then we were able to take more samples then during the call. We found among the fawns, there was about a 30% positivity rate. And among the call samples, we found about 15%. Okay. And then you mentioned that you matched these up with the data sets that were previously collected. So how much of your work is kind of, you know, on the computer working with the data versus out in the field? Like, what's the breakdown there? Yeah, I've been really lucky to have a huge been able to do basically everything in this project so I was able to go out and help with the tagging of the fawns I did a little bit of field work for matching up the mother and fawns as well and well, yeah, I've been, I was out with the coal taking samples and I was able to go out a couple of days with Laura and Jane to watch the human deer interactions as well so I've been able to do a lot of field work a lot of lab work then as well I was able to go out where for this lab work we're collaborating with Anetta Zintel who's a vet in the UCD Vet College and she helped us run, or she mostly ran all these the antibody tests to look for these the antibodies against toxoplasmosis. But I was able to go down and help her out with that and kind of observe all that. And then also then to do all my computer work done myself. So putting the, not done myself, but bring all the data together into one place and then analyzing it all. It's been a really interesting project to be able to do a bit of all these different things I was interested in. As well, working in the lab, I've been able to kind of help out with other people's studies as well. So there's been Snapshot Ireland is a camera trapping project that's been run in Wicklow that is trying to follow a protocol that's being followed across Europe for camera trapping. Uh, so yeah, camera trapping is where you put a camera up, basically, that is motion detected, so it'll take a picture whenever anything walks by. So Snapshot is a larger European project. It started in the US first, but in Europe, where they have a standard protocol that they want to use for camera trapping in loads of different environments to try and see what the different species present are in different areas. And so one of the PhD students in my working in UCD wanted to bring that part of that project to County Wicklow. 
So he's been also been working with Rewilding Wicklow, which is a group he's working out there. You may have seen on the RT News and stuff talking about this stuff as well. But I, myself and one or two of the others in the lab have also been out helping him set up his camera traps and coming back and checking them every month and moving them around. And so it was great to be able to do a bit of everything mm. with this project and in general. Because people probably have a bit of an outdated look at what a zoology-based project would look like. They think it's just fieldwork, whereas yeah. these days like you have so much data on how to collect that. There's so many different either lab work bits or technology bits with the camera work. So it's really cool that you get to look at all sides of it and really get that full experience. So what does that risky behaviour, that begging behaviour look like? So mostly if you see a group of people in the park approaching a group of deer, you'll see the herd of deer will split basically in two directions. A lot of the deer that don't want to go near people will head off in one direction and a lot of deer that will want to be near people and come for food will come the other direction. And so usually the deer will come up to people who they see holding food, who they think might be holding food. And most of the deer really don't particularly like people that much. So you'll see them really reaching out, trying to keep their body as far back as possible and really reaching out to just grab it with the very tip of their teeth, like to just grab the food and get away. And there's some deer then that don't. So you see there's a huge spectrum of behavior, really, between there's some deer that really don't mind humans at all. I've seen some deer just sitting there and have people putting food in their mouth. Most of the deer will be somewhere in the middle where they might come up to people if they think there's high-value food available and they'll just stay as far away as possible. And there's some deer then that will also stay in areas of the park that, pe- that the public can't get into. So around the old St. Mary's Hospital, there's a lot of these forested areas that's all fenced off, that some deer will go in there and just spend their, all their time in there as far away from people as they possibly can. So there's a real spectrum of yeah. interactions. And I suppose that's an issue, especially if someone like, doesn't have food and the deer are approaching them. But if they're not expecting... Like if they think it's like a pony in a a train show sort of scenario with, you know, that's a completely different scenario than the deer who are wild animals coming up to them. Yeah, exactly. And people as well get flustered. There's plenty of videos online of people trying to then not give their deer all the food at once and the deer realizing where exactly where the food is in a bag and trying to grab it or Mm. whatever. Or like large groups of people like the kids and stuff like that who maybe might not understand as much. Especially during the rut because... The males want to really keep their harem in one area away from everyone else. So if the does start trying to leave to get food off people, the males can kind of run over and try and keep the does over here and the people over there. Mm. And it can be... Problematic. Problematic, yeah. Not to, not that the deer would necessarily want to hurt anyone. It can be a bit of a scary situation. Especially if you don't know yeah. why or what's going on sort of thing. So you mentioned the UCD team here works with the team in Phoenix Park and the Office of Public Works. What does the team as a whole look like working with the deer? So it depends on the time of the year as to exactly, especially from the UCD side, it depends what time of the year as to exactly what data we want to be out there collecting. So for most of the year, we send one of our lab assistants out two to three times a month to try and take a survey of exactly where every deer is in the park. So we get a GPS point and the tag of every deer. And built up over a couple of years, it means then we can follow the movements and try and look for trends in what the deer are doing. During the fawning, there'll be a big group of us going out from UCD to try and catch the fawns and tag them. So you'll see us wandering through the park, running through the undergrowth with big butter, big butterfly net looking things uh, to catch the fawns. And yeah, so say hi if you see us. Yeah, During the summer, you'll see Jane looking at 
the human-deer interactions. So she goes out with a spotting scope and you probably might see her if you're out over the summer as well, watching the deer. Then the mother-fawn pairs as well. So once the fawns begin to join the herd, we'll have a couple of mostly undergrads from UC will go out and try and observe the fawns' behaviour as they come back into the herd. We'll be able to match the mother and fawns together. So basically looking for behaviours, like if there if there's a fawn suckling from one of the does, then if we can catch that a couple of times, you'd know that that's the mother of the fawn and that sort of thing. And if you if you see the two of them just walking by themselves off through the park, it's more than likely the mother leading the fawn off into another hiding spot. I guess it makes sense that it varies seasonally because there are you know different points of the deer's life going on at that time as well. So before we let you go, we do like to ask people across the various sciences that we have on the podcast, what is one like misconception people have about the work that you do? So something that you think the general public just does not realise or has completely wrong? I found that, especially doing a zoology degree, the amount of people, especially in my family, who said, OK, do you, do you want to work in a zoo? As the first question they ask when they say that I'm doing a zoology degree is frustrating because... There's a lot more opportunities and it's a much more broad course out there than just zoology being, okay, and I'm going to look after things in the zoo. I can, it's understandable, obviously, with the names being so similar, mm. but it's a much more kind of a broad degree looking, obviously, even between animal movement, behaviour, research, and then also has more industry applications as well. And um, even just skill set wise. Yeah. You guys have to do a lot of even the population stuff will be stats-based coding to work with your data. Like it's a lot broader than I imagine people think. Yeah, and of course then also the deer in the park being wild deer as well, not just like a farm or domestic animal. Because people think especially they see other people feeding the deer and they see the deer with the ear tags on and assume that there might be like a cow or something at a petting farm, you know, that domestic animals that are used to being near people all the time, whereas that wasn't always the case. But it's only really in the last 15 years that the deer have started approaching people more with the rise in social media we think it's different we don't have data going back looking the deer all that far but anecdotally about 15 to 20 years ago that you would be you wouldn't get within 50 meters of the deer in the phoenix park that they would always stay as far away as possible but only then once people started wanting to get photos for social media they started to tempt them in with food is when we anecdotally talking to the rangers we haven't done any research on it but it's only then that the deer started coming up to people begging for food interesting coming much closer another um i don't think that's an upside to be honest in social media i think that's um much like with a lot of things not a great sign yeah but look thanks very much for joining us anyway where can people find you if they want to so yeah i'm on twitter at android 97 and also the lab if you want to see more papers on stuff in the park and stuff you'd be looking at ucd wildlife is the tag for ucd lab laboratory of wildlife ecology and behavior which is the lab group i'm working with in ucd to do most of their work in the park Perfect. And we'll have those linked in the description of the episode for anyone who wants. All right. Well, thanks very much for coming on. We really appreciate it. All right. Thank you very much for having me. Great. That's everything for this episode. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about us or about Pint of Science Ireland, follow at Pint of Science IE on Twitter and Instagram and find us wherever you get your podcasts. Andrew can be found on Twitter at Andrewoid97. That's A N D or E-W-O-I-D 97. This episode was made with Brian Kennedy on sound and the editing assistance of Brian Kennedy and Molly McCrory. Research assistance was also from Brian Kennedy and Molly McCrory. 
thanks to the co-directors of Pint of Science Ireland for 2023, Ashley Gorman and Kevin Mercurio. And thanks as well to SFI. Thanks very much again to Andrew for joining us on this episode. Pint of Science Ireland is a part of the global initiative, Pint of Science, which aims to bring the research to you, the people that fund it. We'll see you next month. This has been Kate Finucane.